Welcome back to AD 79, A Year of Vesuvius, Episode 19, Gnaeus Elias Nigidius Maius, A Man in Full. Last time we picked over the limited material concerning Julia Felix, a landowner, and touched on the problems of confusing established fact with speculation. This time, Elias Nigidius Maius, concerning whom we have considerably more material, landowner, politician, impresario, civic benefactor, one of the most important men in Pompeii, also a landlord. Again, start with the house. This one located on the opposite end of town, a block or two away from the Forum. When originally excavated in the 19th century, it was dubbed the House of Panza in honor of the campaign poster Panza for Edile gracing one side of the entrance. The name stuck, but not for good, as we shall see. Located on the Via del Terme, which, as the name implies, is a block away from the Forum Baths, not necessarily the most desirable in one sense, if Seneca is to be believed, I live over some baths. Imagine the assortment of sounds which make me hate the very power of hearing. When the muscle boys are exercising or pumping the lead weights, when they are working out, or pretending to, I hear their grunt. Finally imagine the hair plucker with his strident, shrill voice, never holding it in except when he's plucking someone's armpit and making his clients yelp instead. Probably there was not enough noise of this sort to drift to the house in question. It was not just a house, mind. The building is one single structure, dating to the 2nd century B.C., and fit for a person of substance and wealth. The back third of the area was open space dedicated to a market garden. Most of the street-facing parts were set up for shops, one a bakery, three residential units. All of this took up an entire city block. Not a double wide like Julia's, but nothing to sneeze at either. We're talking about half an acre, one-fifth of a hectare, 22,000 square feet, 2,000 square meters in downtown Pompeii. Again, no longer the House of Banza, not officially anyway. It is now the House of Gnaeus, Haleus, and Nicodius Maius. He, we later learned, was the owner in the 70s. We learned this from another sign on the house that was advertising space to rent. To let from the 1st of July in the Insula Ariana Poliana, property of Gnaeus Aleus Nigidius Maius, commercial slash residential units with mezzanines, quality of floor apartments, and houses. Address inquiries to Primus, slave of Gnaeus Elias Megidius Maius. Note the fellow Primus. Julia Felix, recall, wanted, or needed, to interview tenants herself. Maius was happy to delegate. One man, one slave, one considerable property with admirable commercial possibilities on all sides, located in a busy part of town. Who was Ariana Poliana, for whom the insula was named? No idea. 
uh, though the Polly family do turn up in the literature. Okay, then, so, who was Maius? What was he? Here we are on firmer ground. As mentioned above, he has quite the record, in fact, besides this one commercial graffito. We find him referenced in those business records of Gaius Eucundus, see episode 8. He appears on the funerary inscription of Gnaeus Eleus Eros, freedman of Maius, who was made an Augustalis for free and who was given 1,000 sesterces in honor of his funeral by the Augustales and Paganos. Then there is carved the mention of Alea, daughter of Maius, priestess of Venus and Ceres, to herself in accordance with the decree of the town councillors with public money. No more word of her, unfortunately, either. His birth year is speculative, somewhere between A.D. 15 and A.D. 25. His birth family is certainly the Nagidii. It's an old Samnite name, respectable, but not much more. No great shakes. Working, middle-class tradesman, there is evidence of bronze work. That said, someone of the Nagidi family must have been successful enough to marry a member of, or perhaps a freed slave of, the decidedly upscale Aliei family, a crew with deep roots, deep pockets, and many honors. How this came about is obscure. Names pop up in various places, but the relationship between one and the other is not necessarily made clear. We do know that our man was at some point adopted by his grandfather, Gnaeus Aleus Nobilis, and his wife, Pomponia de Tarkus. Scholars argue that both grandparents were freed slaves of that family on the grounds that de Charcus suggests a freed background and her husband is therefore unlikely to belong to the elite, probably being a freed man himself. The noblest is a bit of a poser, a curious thing to call a freed man. And even the suggestion that Pomponia de Charcus was of servile origin is open to question. Richardson argues that de Charcus is just a fancy way of saying from Puteole. He does not elaborate or provide other instances. So, Nigidius and Aleus, or a freedman of that family, not too bad a situation. But wait, there's more. The grandparents turn up on an inscription on the tomb of Eumachia. Pompeia de Charcus, wife of Aleus Nobilis, mother of Aleus Maius. A brief digression is in order. The tomb of Eumachia, just outside of town, is huge to the point of tastelessness, at least at that time. Eumachia was the daughter of a rich brick and tile dealer, married into the old and prosperous Numistrii family, became priestess of Venus Pompeiana and patron of the Guild of Fullers. Another large building of the Eumachia dominates the Forum. Scholars have fun proposing its unknown purpose. The tomb is a more clear-cut proposition, built for the purpose of Sibi et Suis, herself and hers. The direct lines of Eumachia and of the Numistri appear to have petered out early in the first century. 
The tomb was either appropriated simply because it was there, which seems unlikely, or the grandparents were close enough to the soon-to-die-out family to qualify one of the hers in the phrase herself and hers. So, our boy Maius is the chosen one, both parents dead, heir presumptive to a fortune. How long before the grandparents died, and who guided the young man at that point? Related by blood or law to the Ali and Yumaki and Numistri family, it could involve three sets of serious money and some residual political influence, which he put to some good use. Some suggest that he was a member of the Juvenis Veneri Pompeiani. You will recall them from last time as possible previous owners of the bathhouse and property of Julia Felix, small world Pompeii. Could be. More definitive bits of the CV turn up. He was Duumvir Quinquinalis in 55-56 AD, Flamen Caesaris Augusti, priest of Augustus, Princeps Coloniae, these last two mostly honorary positions. Possibly he benefited from Vespasian's desire to inject new blood into a decadent and dying-off aristocracy. He was also the owner of a troop of gladiators and a donor of games. His rise up the curses Honorum shows him as a duumvir, possibly about the same time as Regulus, whom you'll recall as the fellow exiled after the amphitheater riots of A.D. 59. He does not appear to have been caught up in that piece of unpleasantness. All this from bits and pieces around town. Then, in 2017, excavators just outside of town came across a tomb which boasts a lengthy inscription, a res gestae, things done, of an unnamed Pompeian, unnamed, but almost certainly him. It's more of an encomium or a song of praise than a CV, but it does have much of interest. We read, loosely, On attaining his manly toga, he provided citizens of Pompeii a banquet of 456 triclinniums on which 15 men could recline. He underwrote a gladiatorial show of 416 gladiators as so grand and magnificent that it matched any noble colony founded by Rome. Now, as his office coincided with a famine, for four years he fed the populace, for his concern for his fellow citizens outweighed that for his own patrimony. Where a bushel of wheat was quoted at five denarii, he bought it and put it at the disposal of the people for three half-denarius coins. And to ensure that his generosity reached all, he distributed to the citizens individually through his friends a quantity of baked bread for the equivalent of three half-denarii coins. For all days of the hunting show he had organized, with the approval of the Senate, he provided all animals of every kind for every type of fight. And when Caesar gave the order to deport all the sentenced families from the city beyond the 200th mile, to him alone was granted permission to bring native Pompeians, or two men named Pompeius, back to their homeland. On the occasion of his marriage, he distributed the sum of fifty bronze numi to each decurion, twenty silver denarii for each of Gastale, and twenty numi for each of his countrymen. 
Twice he organized free large shows for the community. For all these things, by popular demand, the Senate agreed that he be co-opted as patron, while the Duovers reported that he himself declined, stating that as a private citizen he was not able to be patron. So loosely reads the one marble inscription, very fulsome, again, more a eulogy than a CV, but it's what we have. And it gives us a few insights into the life and times. No offices he held are specifically noted, just the bounty on offer from the ridiculously rich. And we can infer a little influence he had with Nero from the line about bringing home some prescribed locals after the stadium riot of AD 59. The ten-year ban did not include animal hunts, the sort of thing mentioned in the inscription, and as of AD 62, presumably to cheer up the remaining Pompeians who survived the earthquake, the ban was reversed in its entirety. One would like to know a little more about the relationship between Maius and Nero. The public banquets at his coming of age between 15 and 17 are interesting. We have seen the inscription of the Isis Temple, see episode 7, which honors the young boy whose money and freedman status enabled the cult to restore their damaged temple. No such public piety is from Maius. Perhaps his religious impulses ran in other directions, but only the banquet. The banquet is something of a puzzle. 456 triclinniums, each for 15 guests. That's a lot of furniture, for starters, assuming it was random furniture. 6,840 servings, if you do the math. Was it just adult men, or were wives and children invited? Much carpentry, never mind cushions and pillows that would presumably have this one-time use. Where were they put? In the farm? What are the kitchens? Where was the food prepared? And the entertainment, of course. Can't have a good blowout banquet without entertainment. Again, we'd like to know more. The bread. Not an imperial dole, but personal from him, and likely marked as such with bread stamps with his name on them. Small bronze or iron stamps pressed into the unbaked loaves attesting to the ownership of the bread. We are, after all, talking about a time when bakers did for all comers, and there could be confusion over whose was whose. In this case, any lucky recipient would know exactly whom to thank. The 416 gladiators, can that be right? 208 pairs? Or does he mean individual bouts? Over what period of time? Many days, certainly, perhaps weeks. How long can one sustain interest in gladiatorial fights? Or are the numbers misprints by a carver who had never gotten the hang of Roman numbers? Many questions, many possible interpretations, many scholars devoting their energies and expertise to coming up with suitable answers. There was more to the tomb, of course. It is a good guess that another piece of marble, a long carved relief of gladiators duking it out with each other and with wild animals, a bit of marble that was found in the area in the 19th century, was part of this same tomb. You can see it in the Naples Archaeological Museum. 
Amias's interest in gladiatorial games is elsewhere confirmed by announcements of the same put up in his name. At least five specific announcements of upcoming events survived the eruption, some of them years out of date. A brief program in some, procession, hunt, combat, and number of gladiators involved, 20 to 30, which makes that figure of 416 more than a little eyebrow-raising. Most signs underscore that his games were free to the public. His games were such a thing that there is one graffito that says nothing more than good fortune to Gnaeus Galeus Maius, the leading games-giver. All good things, all bad things as well, come to an end, and the tomb, assuming, as we do, that it is his, shows that our hero did not live to see the eruption, which suggests a wonderfully comfortable life from start to finish. We can also imagine a man who could have been a complete and utter pig of human being, but was not. We can wonder about his daughter, the priestess, and whether she survived the catastrophe, and if so, how well-placed was she to carry on? Nicely, we hope. If there are any other descendants, they're lost in the ashes. The philosophically and romantically minded can argue which is his greater legacy, bread and circuses and a few coins for his fellow Pompeians, or his scattered words, one funeral inscription, one real estate for rent sign, already out of date by the time of the eruption, and many outdated circus posters. For us, there's hardly any question. The words. Makes you think. Next time, Rosalia, Days of Wine and Roses. The Romans liked roses. A lot. The Rosalia was a festival in which roses were the center of attention. Until then, thank you for listening.